0: Welcome to UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series Archaeologies of Art will be given by Douglas Bailey, University of San Francisco. Art to archaeology, to archaeology, to art. What I want to talk about is the series of relationships between artists and archaeologists. And I want to begin with a category of artists who have been inspired by archaeology. Dr. Christopher Evans of Cambridge University in the United Kingdom has written a series of very important papers about this relationship and the ways in which the archaeological landscape, like the Vale of the White Horse in the United Kingdom, has inspired artists. He's looked at artists not only in the 20th, but also in the 19th century. People like Paul Nash, who took very interesting and evocative photographs of an archaeological landscape, but they did it in an artistic way. Now we could bring it up more to the present and look at work like Mark Dion, an artist who has worked not only in London, but also in Venice, and most recently in the United States. Mark Dion is an artist, He's a performance artist, and in many ways, I think, he's perhaps the most widely known contemporary artist who's been engaging and being inspired by archaeology. I think his most famous site of performance has been the Tate Times dig. Now, this was a very important piece of work, but again, I think I want to stress that it's a piece of artistic work and less a piece of archaeology. And as some of you may know, what Mark Dion did was he collected objects from the shores of the Thames, and he did this in a quasi-archaeological manner, and he set up finds processing tents on the banks of the Thames and in front of the Tate, and he invited people to participate, both as assistants and analysts, but also to participate as viewers, as spectators of what was going on. Now, although this is perhaps one of the best known examples, in recent past at least, of an artist being inspired by archeology, span I'm very unsettled and I think a little bit unhappy with the way in which Mark Dion is coming into archeology span and playing with some of the things that we do. So I could go into a very long discussion now about Mark, but I think it's best to put it in his own words. And in an interview in 2001, talking about this relationship of an artist playing in the archaeological sandbox, he said this, and I quote, I never take on the mantle of mastery in these projects. It's always obvious that I'm a dilettante struggling to find my way. As you know, the tone set at a dig is pretty irreverent despite the serious labor involved. So there is a strong performative aspect, but there is no illusion. So, for me at least, I'm a bit worried when Dion says these things. Because Dion is a successful artist, and some of his best work is about display. Indeed, some of his best work is about taking archaeological material and displaying it in art museums in provocative ways. But his archaeological projects, I think, are not archaeological. And I'm a bit worried because they come across to me as a bit amateurish as a bit of the student-esque, almost as a prank, or in his words, the work of a dilettante. So if that's the work of Mark Dion, I'd like to suggest that there's some much more serious work which has been going on, carried out by contemporary artists on the archeological past. And I think one of the best examples of this work is that of Simon Callery. Now, Simon Callery, a UK contemporary artist who's worked with archeologists from Oxford University At sites like Alfred's Castle. Simon's work at Alfred's Castle is called Trench 10. And this is actually a very interesting thing to do. What Simon did is he went on site as an artist and tried to engage the place in ways he knew best. And what he ended up doing, the work which is called Trench 10, is actually a latex cast of the bottom of the trench which the archaeologists had dug. And when they pulled this latex away from the chalk ground, it actually pulled away bits and pieces of this chalk. And Simon then had an amazing piece of material, an amazing work, which he then presented in a museum as an installation. Now, also people have talked to Simon Callery about why he's doing this and what happens when he starts to work as an artist with archaeologists. And I think these discussions bring up some interesting points of significance, which mark Simon Callery's work as being more substantial, perhaps, than that of Mark Dion's. Because both Simon Callery and good archaeologists today are engaging some of the same issues. The work, both archaeological and artistic, engages issues of absence, what happens when one digs a trench, you remove things and you then have to represent an absence. So the common theme is representation in general of fieldwork for the archeologist, but also of surfaces for the artist. Another common theme which comes out of Simon Callery's work, which the archeologist will feel very at home with, is the relationship between the field and the museum. Where are the boundaries between the site of fieldwork outside and the place that work is displayed, the museum. Whether that's an art museum, or a natural history museum, or a museum of archeologists. And I think the exciting thing, or one of the most exciting things for me about Simon's work, is his willingness to take risks. He's an artist who is taking risks. And he sees art and archeology span both as being a form of questioning, Now, he was interviewed in 2004 by Susan Cameron, who was then a a master's student, again, at Cambridge University in the UK. And she talked, Susan Cameron talked to Simon Callery about his work, and she asked him if he could explain it. And he replied with these words. He said, I don't feel the need for explanation because it's possible to explain things away, to shortcut the experience. I don't want to explain it. I actively try to make things difficult because it's not about communicating in the quickest possible way, it's about communicating in a distinctive way." These I think are very important words. And Susan Cameron then went on to ask Simon Callery about archaeology. And this is what Simon had to say about that. He said, Archaeology is about limiting interpretations, about limiting connections, about proposing a truth or a fact. seems to be actually richer when it works through misunderstandings. So anyway, we have one category of people then who are working at this interface of art and archeology. span They have common themes. These are artists who are inspired by archeological landscapes and archeological projects. And like archeologists, they work on the big themes, time, the body, place, landscape, material culture, display. But in some of this work, especially that of people like Mark Dion, I detect imitation, and in Dion's word, the dilettante. So most of the work, I think, is very good. Some of it, though, is less satisfying. The most provocative is work like Simon Callery's, in which he manipulates the surfaces of sites, not only by casting, as I've discussed, but in other important work, where he uses photographs, and display cases. Things that really make everyone think in new ways, not just artists, not just archeologists. But again, it's Simon Callery's willingness to take risks, to continue to put himself in a situation where he had to reject the things that made him comfortable as an artist. When he was on that site, he talked about the fact that he was not going to be able to make art in the way he usually did. So if that's one category, of the relationship between artists and archeologists, what other types of relationships are there? Well, it's become very popular in the last 10 or 15 years for archeologists, especially in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States and across Europe, to look to some of the most famous contemporary artists as a source of interpretive information. They look at the work of artists like Richard Long. Richard Long, as many people know, was an artist who made work in the landscape, most famously, by walking up and down in a line for a period of time until the grass underneath his feet wore away and the piece of work was the line. And one of his most famous works is called A Line Made Walking. Now, Richard Long is superb, fantastic. I get very excited when I see his work. It's about a provocation to think about time. And Richard Long's work is about time. That's a very archeological concept. It's also work about traces and action. There's another artist who seems to be in the sort of favorite set which archaeologists look to. Andy Goldsworthy is who I'm talking about. Again, Goldsworthy's work, the way in which he works with stone, but also with ice and other strange materials, provokes archaeologists in very important ways, without doubt, to think about materials and temporality and the ephemeral. Or we could talk about the contemporary artist, Anthony Gormley. Now, Gormley, as many of you know, uses casts of his own body in metal. He places these casts around the landscape, most famously and perhaps most recently, on seashores, on beaches in Belgium, in the United Kingdom. This work is very provocative. For me as an archaeologist, it makes me think about the body in new and unexpected ways. So when I go about thinking how do I represent the body of someone who lived 6,000 years ago, Gormley's work makes me think in new ways. So this work by Gormley, by Goldsworthy, by Long is very exciting. In fact, there are more recent and less well-known artists who are doing similar work. And I'm thinking, for example, of the work of Adam Bertham. He showed his work recently at the World Archaeological Congress at University College Dublin. Now Adam's work I find exciting because he takes everyday objects, like a book, and places it into the ground. And he encourages the organic processes to do their thing, to break down that material. This is about entropy, about things perishing and falling away. He's looking at what happens beyond the limits of our intentions and of our control. Now all of this work, Bertham's, Gormley's, etc many other works by contemporary artists, I find incredibly stimulating as an archeologist. And when I see their work, I pull out my little notebook, I get my pen out and I say, wow, I can think in new ways about my site in Romania where I excavate, which is 7,000 years old. So that's very exciting. But on the other hand, I'm a bit worried when I have these thoughts. I ask myself, what is this connection which we're making between my 8,000 or 7,000-year-old village and this modern work which is now, which is of the current time? And my worry is this. I'm concerned that we as archaeologists don't really get the benefit which we could when we think in an artistic way. And it's almost as if we as archaeologists sit in our offices and we look out a window and through that window we see artistic work by contemporary artists and we even climb through the window and we look at this work and we handle it and it inspires us. But then we put the work down, we climb back through the window, we sit down at our desks in our academic boxes and we write our interpretations of the past. Now, this is nothing different from what archaeologists have been doing for 50, 60, or longer years. They've been looking for analogies to aid us in interpretation. So, the common use is to look at an ethnographic, a living group of people somewhere in the world from which I can draw an analogy of the way they act, or the way they think, the way they live, and I can play that back, climb back into my office, and play that back on my 7- or 8-thousand-year-old village in Romania. Well, I'm suggesting that's fine as far as it goes, but I think there's something much more exciting which is available. And if we can take the risk, and this is the key, I think we can move into a new space altogether. And some people are taking that risk. So this brings us to our next category of people who work at this interface of art and archaeology. We could talk about the exciting work of Aaron Watson. He's trained as an archaeologist. He has a PhD from Reading University. He's also trained as a professional illustrator. He's also an artist. He has created some of the most provocative, I think, at mind-altering understandings of the prehistoric past of Britain. He works with photographs. He works with paint. He works with video. He works with sound. It's extraordinary work that makes me think about some other place which isn't just the prehistoric past. It isn't just the present. It's some place and some time altogether different. There's another set of work which is probably better known, and that's the work of Professors Christopher Tilley and Barbara Bender and Dr. Sue Hamilton, which they undertook on a bronze age landscape in the u k at Leskernick Hill. They took big risks in their field work; they were working in a landscape which was made up of prehistoric houses or the remains of prehistoric houses, and these houses had been made out of stone, so much of their work was trying to understand the stones, their layout, how one might reconstruct a Bronze Age house, but also, and I think more interestingly, how the people of the Bronze Age felt about, saw, and experienced that stone landscape. And I think in one of the most radical pieces of fieldwork which has come along in a long time, if ever, the team at Leskernack Hill actually wrapped these stones first in fabric, pink polka dots, I think I remember from a photograph, And then they wrapped other stones in cling film, in saran wrap, in that plastic food covering, and then painted the stones in different colors. This was quite a strange thing, and in a way, it's on the edge of doing land art. It's on the edge of doing contemporary art. Is this really archeological? So that's very exciting. But what I'm a little worried about, and what I wish they'd pushed a little harder, is that having done that exciting intervention in the landscape, which was very artistic, they then crawled back through their window into their offices and used that radical work but to explain the past. And again, I think they wanted to return to the familiar and the safety of their discipline. So this work by Aaron Watson and Chris Tilly, Sue Hamilton and Barbara Bender I think is very exciting, moves us in new ways. How does it do that? Well, these are archeologists who bring their own experience sets and their very specific skill sets. For Aaron Watson, it's as an artist, but also as an archeologist. For Bender, Tilly, and Hamilton, it's their experience as field workers. They bring the best bits of their work into a new thing, into a new place, into a new context. However, and this I think is the problem, they're still anchored to the past. They feel they have to justify this really radical work as being, oh, this is just some other work we're doing, or this is an alternative method which gives us this new angle on the past. They're still locked down to interpreting the past. One of the other things that worries me about that partly radical work of people like Tilly, Hamilton and Bender and Aaron Watson is that their work is still restrained in that they're pursuing some clear representation. They want to make a scientific interpretation or explanation of the past. And this again, I think is entrapment of us as scientists who are refusing to break away. Let me look at one final set of people who are working at this interface of art and archeology. span And these I can only define, I think, in terms of archeologists who are letting go, who are cutting the rope, and who are really taking the risks. There was a project recently in Bristol in the United Kingdom, organized by Professor Mike Pearson from the University of Aberystwyth in Wales, and Dr. Angela Pacini, from the University of Bristol. This was an exciting project sponsored by the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the United Kingdom. And the project was an attempt by a group of different scholars, including archeologists, including performance people, including artists, to investigate the very complex issue of absence and emptiness. How do I, as an archeologist, once I've excavated my site away, once there's nothing there, how do I work with and represent that absence? If I'm talking about a society who didn't have permanent settlements, but who were moving around a lot, how do I represent that absence of architectural structure? Part of this work, run by Pearson and Piccini, and I had the extraordinary good fortune to participate in this project, and the part that I was involved in, we spent two nights camped out in the Bristol Temple Meads train station, And what we wanted to do was to look at, to experience, and also to try to record what a busy space like a train station is when it's empty of people. What is that? Is it a different place? Is it the same place? And how can we, as archaeologists, as photographers, as illustrators, as performers, as filmmakers, how do we represent that emptiness, that lack of sound or lack of light? Well, of course, what we found out is that we couldn't. We could try, but there was always things there. There was light. The lights never turned off. There was always sound. There were even always people, whether it was homeless people who were trying to find a place to sleep, whether it was the all-night guard. But in engaging that and trying to do this, we were doing work which used archaeological methods and archaeological ideas, but pushed way beyond any specific reference to a past. There's another team doing interesting work, They're based at the University of Tromsø in northern Norway. They've been investigating an extraordinary place on an island in the Arctic North. They're investigating the town of Pyramida. This is an abandoned Soviet mining town left by the Soviets after the fall of the Soviet Union. They're doing this investigation as archaeologists, as anthropologists, as photographers. And they're engaging the types of issues which archaeologists engage. Issues of ruin, abandonment, of material culture, of geopolitics at a world level, but also about individual moments of individual lives. So the images you see of that team's work, the photographs they use as output, are not explained, but they're no captions or titles, but they're very evocative images, for example, of a child's shoe, which has been sitting outside since that place was abandoned in the early 1990s. There's another set of work being carried out in another part of Europe, in Spain, by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Alfredo González Ribal. And he's worked with photography again, but he's an archaeologist, and the themes of his work are very archaeological. He works with ideas of materials, of migrations, of people moving, about people's lives, about modernity, about what happens when cultures break down, either naturally or, in this case, under force. He's looked in Galicia, in northwestern Spain, in the ways in which traditional houses and villages were forcibly replaced by villages of steel and concrete. And again, his images, without explanation, without caption, are all about trying to evoke that sense of abandonment, that sense of forced move. And they're extraordinarily evocative. Another piece of work, again on exhibition at the World Archaeological Congress at University College Dublin, is the work of John Schofield, an archaeologist of English heritage. And he's worked with archaeologists at the University of Bristol in the UK. And what they've done extraordinarily is to excavate, so to use all the tools of the archaeologist in measuring, recording, removing, photographing, drawing, publishing, analyzing. They're not analyzing an archaeological site, as it were. They excavated the departmental minivan, the van that used to take students off on digs. They found this van in the breakers yard, they brought it back, and they pulled it apart piece by piece, in a very scientific way. They recorded the fine spots of objects found in the back of the van, cigarette butts, condom wrappers, beer tops, you name it. And they plotted those objects as if it was an archaeological site. Then they looked at all the materials which had gone into making that van, the steel the plastic the leather and they sourced those objects just as an archaeologist in excavating a site would say where is this stone from they said where is that rubber seal from is that from africa is that from south america so it's an extraordinarily successful project again as all i think of this best work does is it takes the skills and the experience of the archaeological pushes way beyond archaeology, and I think beyond art, into some other space. There's another group of people. I'm thinking of the work of Professor Mike Pearson at the University of Aberystwyth. Mike was trained as an archaeologist at Cardiff University in Wales in the late 1960s, but since then he's been working as a performance artist and as someone who carries out research on performance. And Mike Pearson was part of a very important theater company called Brythgolf in Cardiff. And along with the late Cliff McLucas, carried out a whole series of really radically important work, work that was important in performance, and more recently, which I think has resonance in archaeology. One of their works took place in an abandoned farm in a conifer plantation in West Wales. It was a piece of work called Three Lives. So this is performative work. This is an act. This is a series of processes. This is not about photography or recording. But the work, I think, resonates with me as an archaeologist because it talks about three lives as a historical sense, but in a non-narrative way. It's not a simple story. It's quite complex, and there are no easy answers. There's no simple moral tale to three lives. Three lives are these. One of Sarah Jacob, the Welsh fasting girl, one of a prostitute called Lynette White and her murder, and then the life of rural poverty and suicide. And this work which involved scaffolding in this abandoned place, a long drawn out performance with many different actors doing many different things. There's a richness in this work, which we will never find in the newspaper stories or in any academic record of those lives. And it's extraordinary to be part of, it makes you go to another place and that place actually is archaeological and is historical and is artistic at the same time and there's another set of work by professor michael shanks of stanford university and he's probably done the most to push this boundary of anyone now michael's work is in a variety of places and especially important through a variety of media of different outputs, of different forms. And much of his work of the last 10 years is available on the web. He's not publishing as much as he did in his early career when he wrote very important books. Anyway, Michael has engaged in a wide range of experiments in pushing away from our traditional understandings of how you represent the past, pushing away from ideas of simple narratives and simple stories. One of my favorite recent pieces of work is a photograph. It's a bit out of focus. There's some green down at the bottom. There's some gray over on the left. You can't really make out what the picture is of. The out of focus nature is intentional. This piece of work reads off the place of a battle which took place in either the year 633 or 634 on Hadrian's wall, when Oswald of Bernica met and defeated Cadwallan Abcadfil of Gwyneth. It's a place of a battle. That's an archaeological historical thing. But the way in which it's represented leaves and opens our understandings as people looking at that object. This is quite radical work. Many people don't like this work. Many archaeologists don't think it's archaeological. Many artists don't think it's artistic. They're all right. I don't think it's either. It's something much better. So what I'm trying to say is that The best work is by archaeologists who are letting go. And I think what's common to this batch of work I've just been talking about, of archaeologists who are cutting loose, is that they go beyond what's expected. And in fact, they go beyond what's accepted. Their work is non-representational. That's important. It's not trying to reconstruct an exact lost place or lost person or lost event. It's leaving that act of construction for others, for the people who see this work. This good work is not interested in representation as a goal. It's not happy with any reduction of the complexity of life to some simplified narrative or representational picture. This good work is also, I think, very secure. It doesn't have a crutch. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't feel the need to justify itself through some great chapter of theoretical positioning from some French philosopher. It's not offering justification for its output, nor even for its acceptance. It's about doing work very much in the spirit of what I talked about earlier of Simon Callery, that archeologist who made that latex peel of the bottom of a trench. Simon Callery had talked about not needing to explain not needing to smooth out the difficult bits. And I think this recent radical work does that. But this work is also very open. It gives the authority to the spectator, to the person looking, or to the person listening, or to the person smelling, or to the person tasting. It makes you work at the experience of engaging. So what then are the relationships between art and archeology? span Well, clearly there are relationships. There's no one relationship. Is there a distinction between art and archaeology as disciplines, as parts of our lives? Some people have argued that there is. Professor Steve Mythen of the University of Reading in the UK is very strong in his opinion that they're two radically different things, and people who are doing art shouldn't try to be archaeologists, and vice versa. I'm not so sure about that. I'm more convinced that the relationship of art to archaeology is not about trying to find a source of new ways of thinking or providing analogies for us to understand some deep past. I think if there is a difference between art and archaeology, the only difference is that we are bringing different skill sets and different experience sets to the table. There's no distinction because we're all working on the same issues. We're working on the issues of what it means to be human and of trying to understand being human in this world. This commonality is part of what has drawn artists to archaeology and more recently is drawing archaeologists to the context of art. So the challenge I think for all of us as archaeologists that comes out of this best work is met in the following ways. First, We need to exploit our own particular skill and experience sets. We shouldn't try to be artists, but we should try to use our knowledges to best effect. And in doing that, we should seek and enjoy what we might call the non-explanatory. We should recognize that people who make authoritative explanations are raising issues, I think, of arrogance within archeology, span within the heritage profession, The challenge is for our work to be non-representational as an attempt to get away from the over-smoothing of the texture of reality. And that smoothing is not only misguided, but I think it's a bit of a cheat. So a non-representational archaeology would release us, would allow us to cut free, to let loose. And these are processes which produce, I think, the best work across disciplines and across media. The challenge is also for our work, I think, to be non-temporal. This is perhaps more controversial. There's a series of archeological debates going on right now about the relationship to the past and the present or the relationships between different phases of the past. And there's something coming up which is called the archeology span of the contemporary past. And this is the understanding that things which are usually separated out by periods actually are connected. They're connected because we are here today looking at these objects together. If we follow the non-temporal, we have a fantastic possibility of juxtapositioning things. So putting next to each other things which don't usually belong next to each other, of things, of places, of people, which are usually kept apart, If we bring them together, I think there's much to be gained. And the final challenge for us, I think, as archaeologists and as artists, is for enrichment. The challenge is to enrich our wider contribution. And this wider contribution, I suggest, is neither archaeology nor art, but something altogether different and of a much greater return. You've been listening to Douglas Bailey, University of San Francisco. A transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast.